In the last four weeks, we've looked at some topical messages that have all been tied to one verse, and that verse was Romans 6, 5, that says this. It says, For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. So we have this uniting with Christ. We have the Holy Spirit in us as believers. And what does that mean? So that's been the last four weeks, going in depth in a, in a topical way, pulling truth out of Romans 6 about what it means to be united with Christ. Today's message is, is, goes back to what we're more used to here at Lakeside. It's verse by verse. And I'm actually going to venture outside of Romans chapter 6. The first six verses of chapter 7, Paul is still dealing with the error that he brings up in verse 15. So we're going to get into that a little bit. And end uh, there. This is my last lesson as Joe's substitute for the summer. There's another sub coming next week. So this will be it for me. So let me go ahead and open in prayer and we'll go ahead and get started. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for the opportunity that you've given me to dig deep into the word that the Holy Spirit had Paul pen that we know as Romans chapter 6 and now a little of Romans chapter 7. I thank you for the the, uh, truth that's there. Thank you for how it has built me up to learn it and, and thank you that I'm able to pass that on to my brothers and sisters. Father, I just pray that we would hear your voice again one more time in this series, in this session, that we would uh, respond in Christ's likeness, being united with your Son. So, Father, we thank you for the time. I lift up Steve for the message he has brought us. Uh, lift us up that we're prepared to worship uh, with our voices, with our giving, uh, with our hearing, and then finally as we leave here with our applying today. So, Father, we thank you again that your word gives us all we need. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. This is Lesson 5 from Romans chapter 6, but actually we're going to be in Romans 7, but it ties back completely into Romans 6. So, Lesson 5, and the key concept we've been looking at again is the results of our spiritual union with Christ, going back to Romans 6, 5 that I just read you. Here's result number 5 for everybody who's just joining us. Today, at the end, I'll just refresh what those other results were, but we're going to look at result five today, and here's what it is. Believers are united with Christ in order that they produce fruit that glorifies God. Believers are united with Christ in order that they produce fruit that glorifies God. So we're going to read from Romans 6.14, which is where this error comes up, and Paul addresses it, and then he picks it up again specifically in chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. So Romans 6.14 through 7.6. From the NASB, here's what it says. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Verse 15. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? May it never be. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in 
further lawlessness. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Or do you not know, brethren, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives? For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living, but if her husband dies... She is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ, so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For which we were in, for while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at, the wor- at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The other thing we have found as we have made our way up and down throughout Romans 6 is Paul has taught up to chapter 5 of Romans and concludes about justification being through faith alone without works. And we get into chapter 6, he's really talking now about sanctification. And in the verses I just read twice, he said things result in sanctification. So that's the theme of the chapter. How do we walk out this faith that we have? Uh, through that's by faith alone, through grace alone, and not of any works and not of the law. And what's happening, and what we're going to get into here, is that Jewish believers are having a very difficult time. The law is first and foremost in their mind. They can't just jettison it and be done with it easily. And so issues keep coming up and coming back, and here specifically, verse 14, where I started, an error is out there, Paul's hearing, and he's probably not, more than hearing it, there's probably some angry reaction to his teaching coming from what he's taught, and he has to deal with it. And he deals with it two ways, first in the context of verses 15 through 23, he's dealing with one aspect of the error, and then in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 7, he deals with another aspect of the error that he's hearing from Jewish believers. So what we're going to do today, I don't have three points or five, four points or five points. Here's the, the essence of this message and an outline. We're going to look at a principle that Paul brings up in verse 1 of chapter 7. And then we're going to look at an analogy he gives us in verses 2 and 3 to support that principle. Verses 4 and 5, Paul states a very real result. Very, very real results that are applied to believers. And then finally in verse 6, Paul gives us an overarching purpose for that principle that we start with. So we're going to kick this off. We're going to look at the principle. What's the principle that Paul brings up in Romans chapter 7, verse 1? So if you want to put your eyes there, let's read it together. Here's what he says. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, 
And here's the legal principle. So listen to the rest of it. That the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. That's the principle we're going to look at. We'll start out here looking at the audience and the context again, just to, for those who haven't been here, uh, catch them up a little bit. The audience is believing Jews, and we'll get into a little more depth about how we know that, but you can see that when he calls them brethren, they could be Gentiles, they could believe be Jewish as well, but the key is in what is usually in parentheses or italics there, it says, who know the law. So we're kind of narrowed it down. He knows his Jewish brothers are having a, a difficult time with what he's been teaching. So his audience is believing Jews. And what's the problem? If we look back up to verse 14 of chapter 6, they've probably been offended by a phrase within the verse there in verse 14. So if we look at that again, Paul said, For sin shall not be master over you. And here's what may offend them. He says, For you are not under law. You are not under law, but under grace. Paul knew they would be offended, so he also knew in giving them some defense on what he was teaching through verse 23, he needed to come back. And that's what he's doing here in the first six verses of chapter 7. He needed to come back and talk to them specifically, knowing they're offended by his statement that they're no longer under the law. Now, for those who were here last week, you'll remember that I mentioned right up front as we got into last week's lesson that in the uh, course of reading through chapter 6 of Romans, if you took a pen and underlined or a pencil and underlined every time the, the Greek word hamartia comes up, we find the English word sin 20 times in 23 verses. So sin is a big issue of chapter 6. If we were to go all the way through chapter 7, we would find the Greek word nomos come up about 23 times in the verses there, which is the English for law. So the law is the big issue of chapter 7. Paul needs to answer his critics of his teaching about the law, but he needs to do this in a way that gets their attention. He needs to do it lovingly, so he's not going to give them a severe rebuke here. I'm sure what he's writing is meant to get their attention Put down the anger a little bit. Let go of the hostility they may be having over what he's taught them and listen because he's going to give us an analogy that will help them understand what he's saying. So we're looking at or we're talking to believing Jews here. And here's what we think we know about them based on what he has taught them all the way through Romans 1 through Romans 5. They should be and they probably are happy about this that the penalty and the power of the law is gone. They've been released from that. They should be happy, and they are, that they have peace with God. They would be happy that they're justified. The confusion is they thought justification and sanctification came through the law. So they're confused here. They may be happy, but now he's talking about sanctification. They're wondering, well, Paul, how do we live out this without a rule to attach our walk to? We don't understand how this is going to work. So they're confused about grace and sanctification because the law had been everything to them in their walk of righteousness. Jewish believers, like all Israelites, had a strong, lifelong attachment to the law of Moses. They held it in a very high view. 
If you look back at verse 15 of chapter 6, again, we'll understand how the Jewish believers framed their issue with Paul's teaching. This is the error that he deals with in the second half of chapter 6 that upset them. And here he rephrases back to them and tells them why they're upset. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? So the error that is coming back his way from Jewish believers is suggesting, hey, without the law... There's nothing to restrain us. We're going to sin. We need those rules. What's going to keep us in check if we don't have the rules? And Paul knew the error about sinning due to no longer being under the law, he was correcting throughout chapter 6, meant there would be many Jewish believers highly susceptible to a backslidden condition produced by error about law and grace. And he needs to gently persuade them and help them get over this disconnection they have with a lifetime of law-based theology. But one thing we know, if we're students of the New Testament, he doesn't get this undone right here. Throughout the epistles, we'll find time and again, he has to deal with law and works-based issues. So it's not going to get fixed just by this argument alone. It's a constant battle to keep grace from becoming grace law. And circumcision would be that prime example of an issue that just keeps coming up time and time again. So Paul, again, is teaching on sanctification. What he's trying to keep from happening is the creation of new theology that is a syncretism of grace and law. A syncretism being a combining together of. The grace is pure. Nothing needs to be combined together with it. And whenever you have something or anything combined together in a syncretistic way with grace, it leads not to sanctification. It leads to a different word called to become sanctimonious. And the difference is when you're sanctimonious, you're hypocritically devout. So last week, we looked at how Paul answers one part of the the issue about sin why sin no longer has dominion over them. And then in chapter 7, verse 1, he begins to answer the second aspect or second objection from his brethren, the other Jewish believers who are now being told, you're no longer under the law. And it's become a stumbling block. If Paul doesn't deal with this, there is going to be a major impediment in how they live holy due to the error being spread. The wrong understanding will mean that Jewish Christians once again come under a self-binding tyranny of the law they were just released from. So Paul needs to get their attention before he loses them. And he gives them a very affectionate greeting. He says, my brethren who know the law. And Paul is referring to the Mosaic law there. So he knows, and we know from that, that he's talking specifically to his Jewish brothers So we're not excluding Gentiles there because we are just as susceptible to add rules with grace. So don't think we're out of the out of the picture here. Paul needs to deal with anger that has followed him and continues to build on his teaching about law and grace. If you remember back to Acts chapter 21, verse 28, the Jews had tried to kill Paul there in Jerusalem, accusing him of preaching against the law. So it's a sore subject even to believers. So the context and and review of what Paul had taught so far from Romans 1 through 5, just in a nutshell, is this. He taught that man's fundamental problem is his lack of righteousness. And it's not lacking enough. We come to Romans 3.10 and he comes to a conclusion. There is none. 
No one has any righteousness on their own. None are righteous. So there's been universal unrighteousness since the fall. Adam's transgression that's mentioned in Romans 5, his sin, once the law came in, became a multiplication of sin. Paul taught that in judging sin, God demonstrated his righteousness, but in saving some from sin, God manifested his righteousness, and he did that two ways. One, through the outpouring of wrath on Christ, and then secondly, God manifested his righteousness on all who believe in Christ and his substitutionary work of bearing their punishment because they were declared righteous by their faith alone. Righteousness apart from any works, including the works of the law of Moses, by faith alone. The truth is the law cannot save anyone. All it can do is condemn. It condemns all who are under it for their failure to meet its righteous demands. The law can only define righteousness and bear witness to the righteousness that's found only in God, as seen manifested in God the Son. So Paul's reminding them that in about Romans 4, that even Abraham was justified by faith, not by his works, and it was declared righteous on the basis of believing God's promise. And when did that happen for Abraham? Before he was circumcised and before the law was given. So Paul in Romans 1 through 5 brings the believing Jew through a trail of evidence about justification by faith without works. We roll into chapter 6 and we are also sanctified through Christ and ready to stand up and walk out that sanctification. So then what was the reason for the law? If you look back at Romans chapter 5 verse 20, Paul teaches why the law came. It did not come to reduce sin. It did not come to rid man of sin. But just the opposite, it came to multiply sin. So let's just read that together. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And from that teaching came the error in verse 1 of chapter 6 that really was Gentile-based, that they thought, okay, if that's what you're saying, Paul, it sounds to us like you're saying that God loved to give abounding grace over abounding sin so much that maybe it's, you're telling us it's okay. We can just keep on sinning all the more. God will cover that sin with more grace and we're good. So we can become justified sinners that can just sin at will all the time, even more than we ever did before, because now we've been given the license to go ahead and sin. And Paul deals with that at the beginning of chapter 6. If you look there, here's how he answers that. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul's dealing now at the second half of Romans 6 with Jewish believers whose high view of the law overestimated this. It overestimated its ability to deter sin and so they are compelled to fall back on a syncretistic, legalistic grace relationship for their ongoing sanctification. The legalist wants to, needs to, feels they have to solve their sin problem by reintroducing the law. Rules were needed or sin will abound. Despite what they've heard from Paul, righteousness to the legalist just means that, keeping rules. So from Romans 6:15 through 23, Paul answers the legalistic Jew that if he returned to the law, it would be an abandonment of grace, and he reminds them of the consequence of that in a verse we're familiar with, Romans 6:23, 23, 
of what that means. The consequence of doing that will come with wages, and that those wages will be paid, and that is death. Paul taught them that the gospel contained this, this truth, that you must be freed from enslavement to the law, and you are, all as a result of grace. Again, look back at Romans 6.14 where we started. He says we're under grace. There's no law involved, and that's where the confusion we're going to look at today begins. In the minds of many, the confusion reigns in the legalist mind because grace, from their perspective, was the cause of sin. The law was the solution. And Paul says absolutely not. To the contrary, legalism is contrary to the gospel. So you may recall that Paul hits the Galatians with a similar charge in Galatians 1.6, if you want to turn that direction. Paul says in Galatians 1.6, 1, he says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Christ who called you by the grace of Christ. Now, the word alone isn't there, but there's nothing else added. For a different gospel, and then you get into Galatians 2, he goes into detail about the issue of circumcision where many legalists and false teachers are hounding believers, causing an uproar that even Barnabas was carried away in. And then Paul charged Peter with compelling Gentiles to live like Jews. So the issue of the law runs so deep that it was a constant battle to deal with for Paul, and he called himself the Pharisee of Pharisees. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit gives him the right words to help them understand and help us as well. So Romans 5, 6 summed up. The law can define sin, it can even increase sin, but it cannot reduce sin, and it cannot rid you of sin. What we find in Paul's argument in the start of Romans 7 is this. God's righteousness will, not might, but will only be produced apart from the law. And so Romans 7.1 connects us back to our verse that we have been using as our pivot verse for the last Four weeks that we're united with Christ. We're in a union with Christ. The results of this union are that believers have died to the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and the power of the law's mastery over us. And so there's a great transaction that Paul talks about back in chapter 6, verse 3, where he writes this. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And then we get to verse 5 and we find what that transaction brought us. Christ in us. The Holy Spirit indwelling us. Giving us the aid to overcome sin. Help us to walk out our sanctification through the rest of our life. And the law is out of the picture. So let's look at the principle that's stated here in chapter 7 verse 1. He says, do you not know? Those words link us contextually backwards into chapter 6. It brings continuity to all that he's been teaching, so we have to ask the question, do you not know what? And that's where you link back to verse 14. So if you look there, do you not know what? Why you are no longer under the law. And we find the answer to that at the end of verse 1. And this is the principle we're going to look at. The principle is this. The law only has jurisdiction over you while you're alive. All Paul taught in the first 14 verses of chapter 6 had not quite sunk in for everybody. They heard that they had died with Christ, they had been buried with Christ, the old man was dead, had been crucified, 
Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul gives them a new analogy that we're going to look at to consider the truth they were missing. Their principle here is not just for Jewish believers, but it's for us also. The desire to add rules to define righteousness is still alive and well. In teaching that being a disciple, this is what we've talked about for the last several weeks, being a disciple or being sanctified is not part of salvation. And that's a widespread teaching today. So the principle here is the law is only in effect on the living, and he's been telling us, you died. So it does not impact you anymore. But the problem is this. Paul's antagonists elevated the law above God, and they had made it their idol. They were worshiping it instead of the God who wrote it. And their theology had developed to a point where righteousness came from working out and obeying the law. They have been under it their entire life. They needed a compelling argument to understand how they have been actually released from it. They still didn't get it. So let's move on into Paul's analogy. It can be a little confusing. Let's look at verses 2 and 3 again and read it together. Paul writes, For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then, if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law, so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. So what Paul's giving us here is a real practical example about the covenant of marriage that God created. The woman is bound to her husband until death do us part. We hear that at almost every wedding, don't we? All right. So here's what we don't want to get confused about. We don't want to get confused about what this is saying and start thinking that we're talking about marriage and divorce and remarriage here. This is an analogy. So let's stick with that, that it's an analogy here. And it's connected to the law, and he's trying to get the Jewish believers over their disconnect with it. So if you look at verse 3, one thing you want to look at when you're looking at this, so you know it's not about divorce and marriage and remarriage, is there's no mention of divorce in the context. So the suggestion is really that a woman has two husbands, is married twice, and not divorce. It's not saying it there. That's not legal. The law won't permit that. And the connection is that as believers, we're the bride of Christ. We can't have two husbands either. Also, when we connect the analogy back with verse 1, the Greek word for man, unless you have a KJV or NKJV, there you'll, it should say man. In every other translation, it says person. But back in verse 1 of chapter 7, it says this, that the law has jurisdiction over a person And I think it says a man in in KJV in in the King James Version. So we connect the analogy back to verse 1. Paul uses the Greek word anthropos there. It's a generic word for humans, or better rendered, person. The connection is us, the believer to the law. If the believer dies, she or he is no longer bound to the law. Another way to look at it, and we could use a completely different analogy this way so set that one aside for just a second something that seems to happen in pinellas county all the time we turn on the news and find out there's been a murder somewhere in the county but what if in this in a certain case there's a murder there were witnesses this guy needs to be apprehended the police need to catch him take him to trial sentence him put him in jail to get him his just consequences 
The police catch him. A gun battle ensues, and they kill him. Is there going to be a trial? And the answer is no. He's dead. The law has been satisfied by his death. You don't bring dead bodies into the courtroom for a trial, so there isn't going to be a trial, just a different way of looking at the same analogy. Paul is using the analogy of marriage and law to deal with, again, this misunderstanding on sanctification. And Paul also wants to tie in in the upcoming verses, because it's about marriage, their purpose in marriage. The purpose of most in marriage is to have children. You have physical progeny, physical fruit in children. But what he's going to go into is that in this marriage, being the bride of Christ, we're going to have fruit. And it is spiritual fruit. So we'll see that connection at the end of verse 4. In spiritual union with Christ, we will bear fruit for God. If we want to understand who the husband is, look back at chapter 6, verse 6. Paul writes, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. So that's the husband here. That's who died. Our old self died. Our in-Adam self, we've been talking about the last few weeks, it died. So who then is the wife? She is the anthropos, or that generic human of verse 1, male or female, who is now a believer in Christ, now the bride of Christ. She is the generic person who, who is born again. The old self having died was born again to be married to Christ. And where does the law fit in there? It isn't dead. It's still living. It's the person who in Christ died to the law. So when we were saved, our old in Adam self died with Christ at the cross. So what does the cross mean? It means our freedom from the law. It means we were justified. It means we were sanctified. And Christ's death was the basis here for our liberation from the law. Our justification was given as a sovereign act of undeserved favor or grace. And it's also by grace that we stand and are now sanctified as we progressively walk that out in new life, not by the law. We were dead to the law's authority in this regard. It can no longer condemn you because it was satisfied at the cross. Hope that helps. Did that analogy I don't know. It can be confusing the first, first time you look at that about marriage, but hopefully that helps. If it didn't, I'll try and help you later after class. Hope that helped you figure it out. We were dead to the law's authority in this regard. It can no longer condemn you because it has been satisfied at the cross. So let's move on and see the results of our having died to the law in verses 4 and 5. 4 and 5 again, Paul writes, Therefore, my brethren, you were also made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And if we look at that word joined, he's talking about marriage again, that joining together. We were joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And here's the result, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. So Paul transitions from his analogy, and he's talking to us again. So let's look at verse 4 closely. How did we die? What does verse 4 tell us about how our old self died? He uses a language that says, made to die. And that connects us again, right back into chapter 6, 
verse 6, where it tells us this. We'll read it again. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him. So how were we made to die? Violently. We were crucified. So it connects our thoughts and everything in us back to the cross. Our old self was crucified. We were made to die. We also were crucified in regard to the law that condemned us in order that we would be free from the law. Once dead, the law has no more claim over us and cannot condemn us. And we need, need to be warned here. It can no longer condemn us. But it's not saying that you died to the law as a moral obligation on how you now live. You only died to its condemning power. Now, if we think about death as believers, we know that there were two choices. We could die as an unbeliever outside of Christ. We would get what we deserve for our failure to keep the law. We die in Christ, or we we are all believers, I hope. We died in Christ. Who got what we deserved? Jesus did. Christ got what we deserved, but so did our old self. It, too, was made to die or crucified. That truth comes up again in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 10, where it reminds us this. By this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Christ once for all. Jesus redeemed us from the curse of the law, but not from the moral element of the law. Let's look at that a little closer. If you'll turn to Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 through 13. Paul writes this, For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The law was only a reflection of God's holy standards. The consequence for being a lawbreaker was being punished by death. Since it could not be perfectly kept by anyone, the penalty had to be met. And what is the penalty? Physical death and death and eternity in hell. And why did it need to be an eternity? Because our sins were of a negative, infinite value, so the penalty of death had to have an offsetting, infinite value. And eternity in hell, then, was the only solution in order to satisfy God's justice. But if if someone would die as a substitute in our place with infinite worth, then the law could be satisfied in him. So our satisfaction is through Christ, and he is the one who had that infinite value that saved us. Plus, our salvation brought us a complete change in relationship. We're now the bride of Christ. The result of this new marriage we find at the end of verse 4. That's what the message is about today. The result of this is that we will bear fruit for God. It's not might, but will. And it brings me back to this, that there is no such thing as a no-fruit Christian. Bearing fruit for God is a statement of fact. It's not a command in this verse. It's a statement of fact. Due to our union with Christ, we will bear fruit of a transformed life. 
The result of our having been redeemed is the result of our walking out in holiness. So the only evidence of our union with Christ is this. It's fruit. It's the fruit of holy living. And how do we just define that in general? It's a complete transformation. It's not a partial transformation. It's not devoid of any fruit whatsoever, but it's a complete transformation of our attitudes and our actions towards holiness. Fruit doesn't come with a license to sin. That's what Paul dealt with at the beginning of Romans chapter 6. It doesn't come with a license to sin, nor is it found in legalism. The life we now live is to a higher standard yet, not a lower one. Because we are the bride of Christ. We're now married to the author of the law of Moses. And in this relationship, there's only room for two, as there is with any marriage. But with this marriage, it is a very narrow relationship that has to be entered through a very narrow door. And coming through that door, we've got to let go of one of two pieces of baggage. We have to drop our love for sin and the world, as well as our love for rules that we add to our living. If we bring either into this relationship, it is spiritual adultery. And any rules we would add onto ourselves or others has to be released. Look at back, if you turn back to Romans chapter 4. So look at what Paul has to say about this. Romans 4, verse 14 and 15. Paul writes, For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there is also no violation. We strive to exist as a bride of Christ without violation. That's our walk. So Paul sums everything up about the law. One, the law increases sin. It does not decrease sin. And then we get to verse 5 of chapter 7, and we find an axiom about legalism. So let's read verse 5 again. Paul writes, For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Our flesh is the problem when it comes to legalism that may be still found in us. Because rulemaking causes us a temptation to further sin, not reduce sin. But keeping those rules, we have to agree, will produce some fruit. But it's going to be dead fruit, not living fruit. The result of our marriage to Christ is that we produce good fruit for God and a life of holiness. So we're now going to move in on closing on what the purpose is for this by looking at verse 6 again. Chapter 7, verse 6 says this, But now we have been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the Spirit and not in oldness of the letter. The law of Moses does define righteous conduct because it mirrors God's holiness. God saved us that we might manifest that righteousness. The outcome of our salvation is that our old lifestyle ceases and is replaced by a new life in the Spirit. So it's foolish. It's a foolish thought that we can continue in sin. That's where chapter 6 starts. It's a foolish thought. And it's an ignorant thought to think that we can impose new rules of conduct to produce righteousness or define what Christianity is. The purpose of our release from the law is our release to serve Christ and obedience to all of his word that he has authored, which is every word of Scripture. In the past, Paul says we served the law in the old man and it aroused evil because it told us no. 
It aroused sinful passions, and we did the opposite of what it said to do. And last week I I told a little story on myself. As a teenager, I saw the big fence with the no trespassing signs on it, do not enter, under penalty of law, and what did I do? I found a way under the fence. I said, oh, yeah? Really? I I can't go across that fence? Well, we'll see about that. So the fleshly religious reasons that we might bring up rules to obey are a superficial attempt to obey only. But since the old man was crucified, we're no longer slaves to anything superficial. We're now slaves from the heart. If we look back at verse 6, it has the word serve in there. The underlying Greek word is duleo, or slave. We're enslaved to Christ in newness of the spirit, not in oldness of the letter. It's the same law. The law hasn't changed. We've changed. Our motive now is to serve from the heart. And we get a great picture of that coming reality that we now live in back in Ezekiel 36. If you want to turn back there, go ahead. I'm going to be in 36 verses 25 through 27. And this is the promise of what we've been learning about the past few weeks, how we walk in sanctification. In Ezekiel 36, verse 25 through 27, it says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is what it means to be saved, no longer under the condemnation of the law. Let's talk about an application. What does it mean to be free from the law for us? What it means is that we're free from its penalty, but we are not free from any call not to serve Christ in his word. We have to carefully walk out the truth of Scripture day by day. There shouldn't be any doubt. There, there can't be any doubt, any doubt when we study these uh, words in this chapter that we are not called to bear fruit. We are. That's an absolute. We're called to bear the fruit of holiness in order to bring God glory. But there is great doubt as I've taught in the last few weeks, about this across the country in many churches. Not all churches, not all television pastors that you might like and know would agree with what I've been teaching. I found a quote online this week, and only because I don't have the book in my hands where I can turn to the page that was to find the quote, I'm not going to give out his name, but it would be somebody we would all probably agree, yeah, he's a good guy. I have been to his church, I liked him, but this quote I'm going to give is, there's two quotes, are absolute error. Just to highlight that these untruths are found across the country today. So here's what he says. First quote, it is possible to be a child of God and never become a disciple of Christ. Is that found in scripture? I I say not. That's what we've been learning in the past five weeks. That's one quote. The second quote is this. Discipleship has nothing to do with whether we get to heaven or not. So Christ can be our Savior, but not our Lord. I don't find that in Scripture. And again, that's what we've been looking at 
the past few weeks. I wonder how that teacher deals with, or that pastor deals with, those verses that where Jesus is quoting that many will come to heaven's door and want in and are denied. And they say, but Lord, Lord, we did this, that, and this in your name. They're denied because Jesus was never their Lord. And the Lord does not let them in. And this pastor is on the airwaves every day. His books are out in print. We probably, many of us have this particular book on our shelves. But it's wrong theology. So I hope this study through the last five weeks has helped us understand and see that discipleship and holy living was God's purpose for saving us and a result of Christ in us. So let us be people that walk in newness of life. So I'm going to close this series just reminding you of the past five weeks. Our pivotal, pivotal verse was, uh, for our study was found in Romans 6, 5, that we have Christ in us. So five results from our union with Christ. Five weeks ago, it was the resurrection was the dynamic event defining our life in Christ. Then believers have been given a new spiritual condition received by divine favor. Believers are enslaved to righteousness. Last week, we have the indwelling intelligence to wage war against sin and win. And then finally this week, believers are united in Christ in order that we produce fruit that glorifies God. I appreciate your attentiveness for everyone who's been here for the past five weeks and have enjoyed my ability to substitute for Joe. So let's go ahead and close in prayer and get ready for church. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word again. We love it, and we want to do what it says, Father, and we have that ability, Christ, in us. So, Father, we just praise you for that truth. And, Father, again, pray for Steve as he opens the word to us again and and for our ability to hear and do. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.